0: Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur First podcast, where we uncover the stories and get inspired by the journeys of some of the world's most impressive entrepreneurs. I'm Matt Clifford, one of the co-founders of Entrepreneur First, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we're talking about how pandemic-era startups are shaping the new normal. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended economies and had an impact on nearly every aspect of human life. Individuals and companies around the world had to respond in real time to wholesale changes in how we work, shop, socialize, and organize. One consequence was the need for new and rapid solutions to the whole raft of challenges this created. Today, we speak to two founders whose businesses had to accelerate at breakneck speed through the pandemic. Pete Butler of Dishpatch and Matt Wilson from Omnipresent. In an environment where literally every restaurant in the country was closed, Dishpatch had part of the answer. Dispatch partners with restaurants in the UK to prepare delicious, top-quality meal kits and deliver them to your doorstep for home finishing anywhere in the country. Now, I'm obviously a proud investor in Dispatch, but I'm also an equally happy customer. Dispatch is probably the entrepreneur-first company that I've used most as a consumer, had many meal kits from Dispatch throughout the crisis, and it really was a game-changer in terms of the quality of what was available, particularly outside London and other major urban centres. Meanwhile, Omnipresent helps companies with one of the biggest trends accelerated by the pandemic, remote work. Omnipresent helps companies hire and manage remote teams anywhere in the world by offering payroll advice, legal compliance and technologies which facilitate remote work itself. So sit back and tune into our conversation about business in the era of COVID. Pandemic highlighted the fact that millions of people can work productively from any location in the world as long as they have an internet connection. But clearly this was building on a trend that was already years in the making. Many companies have acknowledged the reality that remote work is here to stay. It can enhance work-life balance, reduce cost, and enable access to talent once limited by lack of mobility. But beyond a in mindset for companies, this transition does also bring operational challenges. An obvious one is the question of how to onboard remote employees. Ask Matt about Omnipresent and what they do to make this transition easier for companies.
1: Matt Wilson. Um, I'm one of the founders of a company called Omnipresent, uh, which was formed out of the EF program in uh, 2019. And uh, what we do at Omnipresent is we make it easy to build global teams. The world's changing. Companies are working remotely more than ever. And what that means is that companies can access a global talent pool to hire the best person for the job, no matter where they're located. But that brings with it a whole set of challenges. How do you manage that? How do you manage the administration of that? How do you understand how to employ people in all these different countries around the world? And that's exactly what we do. So we combine a whole bunch of legal infrastructure, financial infrastructure, as well as a technology layer to make it easy for companies to hire the best person for the job, no matter where they're located. So we say we're, we're here to make global teams work, is how we describe it.
0: Pete launched his food delivery business just as the pandemic hit Europe. I asked him to tell us a little bit more about Dispatch's very early days.
2: And Pete, I'm the uh, CEO, co-founder of Dispatch. So what we do is we work with amazing chefs and restaurants, people like Lenghi, Angela Hartnett, St. John, and we help them deliver their food nationwide in the form of restaurant meal kits which if you haven't seen them, are kind of a new category of eating at home. Uh, they're fully prepared restaurant meals delivered to you cold that you finish and reheat. Uh, and you can have the most amazing restaurant or food experience in your home, no matter where you live in the UK.
0: Yeah, and I have to say nothing, but Dispatch has uh, really changed uh, my eating habits um, and uh, probably my waistline as well. At EF, we help entrepreneurs turn their ambitions into reality. That sounds great. But doing it is often a painful and stressful process. For both Pete and Matt, they started their businesses in the chaos of the early pandemic. So I wanted to ask Matt to walk us through how he found starting a company when the whole world had come to a standstill.
1: It was interesting. I think for, for a bit of context, we founded the company in November of 2019 at EF. And then we graduated EF in March of 2020, which was, you know, really when COVID was taking hold in Europe. And um we were kind of launching from EF, taking on our first customers, going out to raise our first round of investment at that point. And the first month or so, you know, kind of March, April, while we were raising our seed round and Uh, we were just getting out there in front of customers. It was a bit of a bizarre time. We were all in lockdown for the first time. Nobody had any idea what was going on. And um, actually the world for about a month was kind of in shock, trying to figure out what it meant and what was going to happen. Economically, it wasn't clear whether we were going to go into an enormous recession. It certainly wasn't clear that we were going to go through this kind of, uh, particularly in the world of of venture, go through this kind of acceleration that there's been since COVID. So to start off with, we couldn't necessarily see for the first month what it was going to mean for the business. I remember Matt, you coming in and giving a, and kind of saying, giving a talk to to the other companies, but us to say, "Look, you're coming out at this really uncertain time." I mean, you know, and and kind of talking through your reflections on what that would mean for us as a business. So that was interesting. But actually, once the dust had settled, once things had started to settle down after a month or so, we raised our seed round and brought on some great investors actually became pretty clear what the change was going to be for the company. You know, we really believed there was this behavioral change that was going to happen. We thought it was going to happen over a five to 10 year period, that remote work would be more and more adopted by companies. But everybody was forced into experimenting with that way of working. And as I say, after about a month, six weeks, It just became clear that we just had to run so much faster than we thought we'd have to, and that the need for what we were building was going to be there much sooner than we'd anticipated. We didn't have five to ten years to build the company. We had to build it in five months and and get something really, really good to market very, very quickly.
0: For Pete, clearly these unique conditions were an opportunity to move far faster than he could have otherwise ever imagined.
2: Although I've had a, a thesis around food, we were not expecting to build dispatch. So the story for us, Starts in March 2020. I was about to join EF and a week before the program started, COVID happened. The first lockdown gets underway. And I remember thinking, this is completely crazy. You know, I've worked in restaurants for the past 10 years. Every single restaurant is closed. No one can get food and drink. And I called James, who's now my co founder, and I distinctly remember this phone call. He was in Thailand at the time on an island traveling. And I said to him, this is complete madness there's going to be some big opportunity that comes out of this. I have no idea what it is, but we should try and build something and see if we can add value. And so the first version of the Dispatch, if you remember, no one could get their groceries delivered for like a three-week period. Shops were closed. Ocado's delivery stops were all full. And so we built a directory to help people find independent food and drink suppliers who could deliver to their home. So we built it in a day, we put it live, and that's basically how the Dispatch started. Obviously, we pivoted the business. We're no longer a grocery business. We're a meal kit business. We did that later down the line.
0: Sometimes finding product market fit takes years. However, the pandemic meant that my two guests today were able to find a large and growing group of underserved customers with huge demand for what they were building right off the bat.
2: It was pretty crazy. I mean, we we got to the point where we were doing thousands and thousands of kits a week. Sort of in Q1 2022 this year, there was three people in the team, and all we could do. Is figure out how the hell to actually execute this product and get the box out. So, we're quite an operational business. So, we're not just a tech layer. We actually take the, the restaurants, cook the food, we take it from them to our warehouse. We do the portioning, the packaging, we send it all out. And all we could, I mean, we we're working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. All we could focus on was figuring out how we could fulfill these products, um, which is a different problem to have than I've had previously in the business. So you're usually figuring out how you get customers. And we had the opposite problem, which is we were turning customers away and we were trying to figure out how you fulfill the product. So I'm definitely not complaining. It was super, super intense, but it, it, it's the best kind of problem to have in a business.
0: Both of these companies are still growing fast. Matt emphasizes that it's important to keep meeting the demands of your existing customers, even as you're trying to expand your market.
1: We really launched in earnest um, about September, October of 2020. And um, I, I remember we'd built a sales team and I remember in December, having to tell the sales team to stop selling because we were not able to deal with the amount of customers that that were wanting what we'd come to market with, which, as as Pete said, you've got to complain about, but it certainly was intense and required a, a huge amount of work during that period to make sure that we were kind of scaling up the service delivery and making sure that we were delivering really excellently for all the customers. You know, what we do is, is super high stakes, so we did the worst thing that we can do is take on more demand than we can serve, and then end up letting some customers down and damaging our reputation. It actually sounds pretty similar in terms of that end of year, start of this year uh, kind of rush and just had to hire a lot to kind of get ahead of that and make sure that we we did have enough capacity to get out there. And then this year just been all about kind of trying to balance the different parts of the business growing together, right? I think that's, Pete, you've probably had some similar challenges there. You've got to kind of get end to end from your marketing, through your sales, through your uh, uh, onboarding, customer success and account management, you've got to kind of level all of it up together. And that's been a super interesting challenge.
2: We found exactly the same thing in that we just didn't have time to put any proper processes in place across any of our business. And so our capacity was what we could physically do in the hours we had in the week. And, you know, we didn't do any marketing for the first six months. We didn't have a customer support team. And distinctly one weekend, we were working on customer support all weekend answering people's inquiries. And it actually, that puts the limiter and puts the cap on the business because there is only so much you can do. And it really takes time to build each of those different functions so you have a stable base so you can go to the next level of business and the next level of scale.
0: Starting a new business is challenging at the best of times. One of the most significant transitions is moving from being a pair of co-founders to leading a team of people. I asked Pete how he delegates work among his small team.
2: I think the key thing is prioritization. You cannot work on everything at the same time. When you've got fires going off around the business, and we literally had fires going off around the business, it was completely crazy. You've got to figure out what you fix first and just focus on doing that, stabilizing that, and moving on to the next thing. And it can be really frustrating because you're focusing on one thing and you know you've got another 10 things to focus on before you can really start working on the business rather than in the business, but you've just got to do it. So a great example is the customer support one I gave earlier, which is, if we don't have any, we have to answer customer support inquiries. If we don't do that, we'll get a bunch of negative reviews. People won't come back to the service. We literally have to do that. So the most important thing is finding people that can do that. Once you've done that, you can move on to the next thing, which is probably bringing you more operational support. And what you find is if you work on these things in the right sequence, eventually it does get better. It's incredibly draining personally, like the hours you work, super long, but it's Like I said, it's a much better problem to have way too much demand than it is working long hours trying to figure out why no one's buying your product.
0: I I will always remember, Pete, uh, having a a Zoom call with you around the time you were uh, raising your Series A, and literally you... You were on video in your warehouse or in a storage room at the back of your warehouse, surrounded with boxes that were going to be dispatches. And you were just like, I'm really sorry. I haven't got time to go anywhere else. I'm just sitting here. And uh, it, to me, it summed up a lot about, about what it means in practice.
2: Well, we didn't have any internet in the business for a while. So we moved into this warehouse and office, and there was no internet. And, and actually, finding a fixed sign internet was not the top priority. So we bought these dongles that we were using. And on every single Zoom call, there was about a three-second delay. So, you know, we were raising around and we were speaking to all these investors around the world, and there was this three-second delay on every single call, which was, people thought was absolutely mad, but oh, I'm, like, I'm sorry, I literally don't have time to figure out the right internet supplier. We're just going to have to deal with this, and people were very understanding.
0: For Matt, finding the right balance between business efficiency and capacity building is the key when it comes to managing small teams.
1: Got to, Like, finding that balance between making sure that Things run really well today, but also that you're building capacity in the business. Like that, that is, um, is so important, right? Because as, as Pete said, you, you can end up being a bottleneck if you don't work on those things that are. But often that feels less urgent to work on the business than to others. Oh, this, you know, we've got a this immediate issue that we need to fix, or this immediate that needs to be worked on. I mean, just working long hours is is part of the puzzle. I think the thing that we, maybe with with an extra six months on dispatch, we're, uh, we're in a fortunate position where we, we'd had built out. We knew, as I said, when, when COVID hit, we knew we'd have to run fast. It was also a pretty good time to hire really good people. There was a lot of really good people available um, in kind of summer, early, early autumn of 2020. And we'd really consciously overhired the first kind of 10, 15 people to make sure that we we could hire people that could then build out their own functions that own units underneath them i think that's the toughest period personally was probably end of q3 in going into q4 of 2020 which is when we were onboarding and ramping that initial core group of leaders that then built up their functions once they were ramped you can share out it's not just sharing out the work it's also sharing out the anxiety and stress and that you know being able to think there's this thing, there's this problem that's that's going on here. I don't need to think about it because I know that you know X person is going to sort it out and they're actually going to sort it out better than I would. Like that was such a release. And actually, we've seen that happen again this year with some of the individual functions, where as we've scaled up the functions, the leaders have been super capacity constrained, have had to be both doing all of the things in their function themselves at the same time as building out the, the their kind of sub-leadership teams. And that's been an interesting parallel to watch the experience that me and, and Ginter went through as we built out our leadership team. And now that's happening at the kind of next level down in the organization. So it's kind of, it's fairly, I don't know how comforting it is for me to be able to go to the leaders and say, like, I know what this feels like. I went through this exact process and it will get better. But it's going to be tough for the next few months, and you're going to have to work hard, and like you're going to have to kind of just suck it up and, and deal with it for the next few months. Like, but you know, let let us know how we can help if there's resources we can give you. Let us know. But sometimes, you know, it just takes time to build out that case, that that organizational capacity.
0: While building a new business can be exciting, there are always hurdles to overcome. Pete told us about how he navigates the obstacles he encounters on the way.
2: I think it's a real skill to have to be able to say. I'm working on this and not on this because the irony is if you if fires are going out everywhere if you try and focus on all of them you're never going to put them out and so over time you learn that if you actually want to fix these things the only way to do it is to prioritize and, and that gets better by doing it and i totally agree with matt that i see other people in our business that are now learning that skill that they're trying to do everything and i'm saying well, no, no no we've got to think about the sequencing here and how we prioritize the work and what we focused on first so it's definitely something you learn the other thing i'm realizing is as you get better at doing things you start to think further out in the sort of peak lockdown with dispatch we were literally thinking a day in advance i could not think of what was happening at the weekend all i could think about was fixing things to sort out what was happening today and over time that was like okay now i'm thinking what we're going to be doing in the next two weeks and that changes to months. And now, actually, we've got much more of like, you know, we're, we're at a three to six month time horizon, which is probably not quite as far out as I would like. But we're now fixing things that are going to make the difference for that time period. And so I, I think definitely the pressure at that point is is a little bit lower because you haven't got this overhang on you every day, which is if I don't do this right now, you know, the business is going to fall apart.
0: Matt emphasizes that remaining focused on your company's daily weekly or monthly goals is important when facing a big challenge
1: I think you need to think about what are the things that are like truly mission critical and I think that's a mixture of urgency and importance right there's those things that are super urgent that just need to get done and if they don't get done like things are just gonna get worse so that what, what things are like on a downward trajectory that, that if you don't fix these fix these problems like they're gonna is' gonna cause more work later on versus which ones are, okay, this thing needs work needs working on, but actually it needs I can work on it now or I can work on it in two weeks and it'll cause a little bit of a little bit of pain in those in, in, intervening times. But whereas, you know, building out the building out your your team, that's something that, you know, isn't going to fix any problems next week. If you your hiring isn't going to fix any problems in the next couple of months. But if you don't do it, you then end up just completely capped out in terms of where you can go in, in the business. So it's tempting to do the things that are like In your face rather than to work on those longer term things that are important but not urgent. I think you've got to think, you know, I don't do this like explicitly, but think in terms of, you know, kind of a two by two of urgency and importance and and use that to prioritize and everything important needs to get worked on, not everything urgent necessarily needs to get worked on. That's the crap that I think you can fall into where you just end up just treading water. It doesn't really need to be said, right? I mean, delegation of Bringing on great people that you can really share the burden with is like the the way to solve that problem, and it's the like it's the way that we that you get yourself out of that, and it's the way that you build an organization that is actually that you know is effective. You know, even doing things yourself, you're going to do them way worse than if you get specialists in. I mean, that's it's kind of almost tried. It's so obvious uh, to to say that
0: it's sort of one of those things that's obvious in the abstract. But quite hard, in my experience, having seen a lot of people go through this, it's quite hard to actually make real. I mean, maybe in a way for both of you, you you literally had no choice.
1: We didn't have a choice. If we hadn't done it, we would just stop. I mean, it was an existential need to do it. And it was something, I mean, also, I do think this is where having both myself and my co-founder both run other businesses previously. So maybe that was kind of a lesson that we'd learned on a previous run out. But that's, I mean, it's just so... It's, you end up just standing still if you, if you don't do that.
0: Both Pete and Matt told me how hiring the right people for the job has proven to be critical both to scaling their businesses and to tackling setbacks. In other words, hiring phenomenal talent is both the most difficult thing a founder does and the single most powerful for their business. I asked them to tell us about their best hires so far.
2: I think one of the best hires we've made or I've made is the chief of staff. And so there's a bunch of things that that person does, but a lot of what they do is take off like the things that are urgent but not necessarily important on my plate. So really what I want to be doing is focusing on like three, six, 12 months ahead. I should be thinking ahead whilst people are kind of executing on like the here and now. And yeah, one of the best times we made it is that's really freed my mind and freed my plate from like the everyday CEO clutter that you have of like, can you sign this? Can you sort this out? Can you look at this? So as with a lot of things in dispatch, I wasn't planning to hire a chief of staff. It just happened. Uh, And the way it happened with us was I began to realize that there was a bunch of things that were on my plate that no one was doing. So finance, people, like leadership, comms and communication, a lot of soft stuff that doesn't really fall into any function, but was something that I've feel I should be doing to be running the business more effectively. So I brought someone in called Nick, who was ex-head of operations at a few different startups. So a real operator. And he said, you know, I've run finance teams before. I've run people teams. So we brought him in a few days a week to sort of just take control of these functions. And pretty quickly, well, both he really enjoyed being in the business. And we realized that we worked together really effectively. And it just gave me so much more leverage. So part-time role turned into a full-time role. And you know contract work. And actually, we actually had a lot of debate around what the right role title was. In is it head of ops? Is it business operations? And we were like, actually, this is the chief of staff role because it's all of those things and some slightly other things. And probably eventually we'll, you know, we'll we'll have a full finance team and we'll have a full people team. But there's still going to be a whole bunch of stuff that slips between that slips through the cracks that I'm probably responsible for, but it doesn't make best use of my time to be doing. That's the way we think about like how we allocate his time.
1: Yeah, we've done it similarly and made a similar hire. She making a second hire in a similar role. So we can kind of both founders and have somebody that they can work with because there's so much going on. Um, it has made a massive difference in terms of being able to just kind of expand your like an extra pair of hands, an extra brain as well. You got somebody really smart in right to uh, to work on stuff across the whole business. We got to a point where we felt like we had good leaders in each of the functions. That were looking after things in their department but when it came to managing stuff that was happening across the business or you know oh there's this thing that touches multiple different areas a lot of that came down and we're getting better at working cross-function as a leadership team but a lot of that came down to oh it needs matt or gunter to come and step in and figure out this thing or to spot this problem that's happening across multiple different areas and that's exactly where a chief of staff style role is able to step in but also among those not administrative tasks that need doing, but things that require somebody who has a deep understanding of the business and is really smart. But so, so it's not a EA role, but it, it's very, very distinct from that. But there's so much of the job that is just this doesn't require this doesn't require me to do it, but it requires somebody who knows what I know to do it. And that's uh, those kinds of things are like so valuable to be able to have somebody to uh, to share the workload. It just means the the whole company gets more done because you stop being the bottleneck. I think it's there's a lot of people that think they think they'll be good at it, but it's actually really 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 challenging role. Um, you need somebody who's super smart because, in essence, it's it's kind of the archetype of a generalist role, right? They need to be able to basically turn a hand to almost any task and to be able to take that on, um, deliver on it quickly, work with a lot of autonomy because that's kind of the point, right? Is that the kind of here's the thing, go and go and solve it, and don't talk don't talk to me until it's solved kind of kind of thing. I mean, that's the uh, that's the. That's the ideal outcome, right? Is uh, is is that people could kind of take projects, run with it, um, but also be like deeply understand the business and be able to work well across the across the company as well, and work well with the rest of the leadership and the rest of the, the rest of the company. Um, so you need somebody who's pretty capable, um, as well as being like really low ego. I think that's one thing that is like I can't imagine anything worse than having somebody doing that role, kind of going. Oh, I, do, I don't want to do that particular like task because you know I actually wanted to kind of like develop myself in this area. Like you obviously need to support the career development of that person, but actually they need to just be able to kind of do the things that need doing and turn their hand to what needs doing. And that's, that's kind of the essence of the role. Um, the guy who we hired, um, Pavan, he's all of those things. He, he's, he had a background. He'd worked in startups, but he'd also been, he'd just come from Bain. Um, and had been a, um, a consultant at Bain for a number of years. So was kind of used to, uh, I think it's a really, I mean, Matt, you, you were at McKinsey for a time, right? So, um, in a similar kind of organization, I think, um, it's an interesting talent pool to look at for those kinds of roles because you tend to have people that can pretty much turn their hands to anything, tend to be re- have a, have a pretty high, um, clock speed and, uh, and also can just kind of get shit done i mean that's uh, really what what we are looking for but then there also just has to be a personal fit as well right you have to be able to kind of gel with somebody and just get stuff done so that was uh, it was a pretty had really a fairly challenging interview process for that individual but um it, it took us a while to find the right person it was important to get somebody that we felt was a really good fit for the organization but also for me and for gunter
0: Fundraising is challenging, even in the best of times. And in the early stages of the pandemic, it looked like the bottom might fall out of the venture capital market. In reality, the last two years have turned out to be two of the best for capital raising in the history of VC. Dealing with this sort of roller coaster is integral to a founder's role. I asked Pete to tell us a bit more about his experience fundraising for Dispatch during the pandemic.
2: I think one of the benefits of growing really quickly is that fundraising is easier. That is definitely one of the upsides. So we were not planning to raise our previous round. We were growing really quickly. We had some amazing early investors, obviously yourselves included, that were like, well, maybe you should speak to some of you know, the bigger funds that might be next on the list. We had those calls and then actually we got preempted. Once you get one term sheet, you get a few term sheets and, and then the round was done. So you know, we never had a pitch deck, we never had a model. It was actually pretty low effort. And I, I was, to your point about taking calls in the stock room, I was taking these investor calls, running up from the warehouse in the middle of the staff room or the stock room and kind of just doing our best. And it does make it easier if you have ultimately investors are looking for traction, particularly in consumer companies. They want traction more than anything. So it was, it was actually a relatively painless experience, although it was still quite painful given that we had a lot of other urgent things on the list. But as rounds go, it, like, it, it really wasn't that bad. And of course, everything was on Zoom, which means you, you're absolutely right. You can pitch investors from around the world and it kind of makes absolutely no difference.
0: Initially, many people were sceptical that Zoom could replace the sort of rapport you can build so much more easily from in-person meetings. However, this hasn't stopped our founders. In fact, Matt believes that virtual meetings have made raising capital easier for him.
1: I think doing stuff on Zoom makes things actually way easier. I mean, I ran another venture-backed company before Omnipresent and going and, I mean, it's, it's also nice to meet people now if you can. I do like to meet people, especially if you're going to be um, potentially having somebody join the board. It's nice to meet somebody in person. but being able to handle most of the process virtually just makes things so much more efficient. I remember at the start of in our seed round, we were raising our seed round those first few weeks of the pandemic I was talking about earlier. I think I was doing eight or nine pitches a day for that seed round. So we were able to really cram that in into a, a short period of time, which is good for the company, right? You get in front of more investors, you get more competition. But I think one thing that's that we've we've been kind of balancing is in an environment where there is capital fairly readily available for companies that are growing fast like choosing the right speed to deploy the capital like acting in a way that is kind of growing the business fast enough but not in a way that's kind of developing a culture and a muscle memory for being wasteful i think that's something that requires being deliberate like really focusing Like you've got to While there may be investors that don't necessarily like when there's when there's money flying around, like there are companies that are raising that aren't necessarily being built on great fundamentals, but you can't build a business that's not built on good fundamentals. It's like you're just on a fool's errand, right? You know the chickens are going to come home to roost at some point. So, really thinking, what are we building? How do we build this in a way that's sustainable? How do we leverage the capital that is available to grow faster? How do we invest in the right areas? Which areas is it okay to be inefficient in for the short term? Which areas do we really want to make sure that we're proving out the efficiency of the model? Um, and it does open up new possibilities, but it also opens up some dangers as, as well. So again, it's probably got one of those nice, nice problems to have, um, but... It can still be a problem, right? I mean, if, if you end up getting into bad habits, you end up not really thinking fundamentally about things that are really going to drive success long-term. But I, th- I think it, of course, can lead to some relatively short-term thinking as well, where it's like, oh, we're raising every six months. Let's just like get the metrics in a good place for what they look like for investors, rather than like let's really, like, let's really work on these core things that are going to have a three to five-year payoff rather than a six-month payoff.
0: Yeah, we talk about this all the time with founders, and it's so hard because obviously you do need capital, so you do have to look good to investors. But the role of a founder is not to look good to investors, and a great company is not one that just looks good to investors. A great company is a great company that will endure ten years out. Now, hopefully, the best investors get that, and you know, kind of have uh, you know calibrated their own things.
1: But it's even harder for the best investors to do that now, you know, when things are moving so fast, it's hard for, for, for any investor to get a, a real good, good feeling for the companies that do look good and look shiny, right? Because they don't have the luxury of time to make those judgments. So, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting environment.
0: Pete also shared about how his investors have added value to his company beyond the cash.
2: I think for us, it's, one is having real partners that help you think through building the business from first principles and making the right decision for the business, not necessarily their VC fund. So, you know, one of the people we work with most closely is is Andrew Robb from Local Globe. He was um, CEO of Farfetch for 10 years, an amazing operator, not a venture capital partner. And so, you know, we work with him really closely and we talk to him about how do we build this business? What do we need to work on? How do we prioritize things? And it really feels like he is part of the team. He hasn't got any ulterior motive or different incentives. He wants us to build a really big, um, sustainable business in the long term. And he's amazing at being a thought partner to help us think through that.
0: Matt told us how one of his seed investors played a particularly important role in shaping the very core of his business.
1: I totally agree. I think the best people, the best investors that we've worked with, that have had the biggest impact to the company beyond the capital that they brought and had the biggest impact in in supporting the, the founders, are those that have, once they've decided they're going to invest, I kind of like feel like they're part of the team, like founder-investor relationship and company-investor relationship. It's like, we're on board. If there's another round that goes on, let's talk about that and let's kind of put our, our hats back on. But actually, 95% of the time, we are in this to build this thing together and we're super excited and that's why we've invested. And I think like the best example of this is probably... One of our seed investors, Playfair Joe, who's the the partner there who led the they co-led our seed round. And Joe, after their investment, I mean, not even after the the, the round was completed, but after the term sheet was agreed, like he joined our team and worked sixty hour weeks, um, and not doing like not doing high level strategy work. Like he was working on a Sunday evening screening CVs for like work working through like three hundred job applications screening them working through all the crap you know you, you always get some kind of spam and, and non and, and nonsense stuff in there we knew we'd have to hire quite a lot how do we build out that core team i talked about kind of getting that leadership team in place first and foremost and you know his background was in talent recruitment like he came in and was like this is where i can help like and we needed the help like it was similar to how he was saying you know we were it was kind of all hands on deck and just him going look this is what the company needs. Like we're a team, like let's do this and getting stuck in. I think that's, I I I don't want to promise on Joe's behalf that that's what he does for all of the uh, companies he invests in, but um, it was less about the work but more about the attitude that meant a lot and just feeling like we've got somebody on board that like through the good and the bad is going to be partnering with us and going to be working on this together and viewing this as something that, you know, they've invested, they're part of the same thing that we're part of. And obviously, they're there to hold us accountable. They're there to protect their investment as well. But that's like that almost feels secondary in the day to day, and particularly when things are going well. To how do we solve these problems? How do we how do we get stuff? Uh, how do we move things forward?
0: Yeah, th- this idea of like partnership, not just financing, I think is so important, and um, it makes makes an enormous difference.
1: I think having like those kinds of those kinds of partners is is great but i think there's a there's a middle ground which is worse which is people that pretend to be partners don't really add add value those i think are the ones to to avoid like just capital is fine obviously having a partner would is that's actually value added is is even better but having somebody that's like not really helping but adding kind of friction and adding distraction
2: is the worst i always say the same thing i think there's three types of investors there's negative value zero value and positive value yeah. not every investor that you have is going to be positive value yeah and you don't need them all you don't need 30 40 people that you've got to manage it's actually better to have a few people who are really engaged who are really best placed to help you rather than 30 people who are trying to help you and it's absolutely fine to have people who are sort of zero value add the ones you kind of want to avoid unfortunately we don't, do we have any yeah. of these investors by the way it's people that but i can imagine what it is like to have them is zero value when actually all they're doing is asking you for stuff and taking stuff and slowing you down. But we've been very fortunate to avoid that. We've we've got a great campaign.
0: I spoke to a founder the other day who said they were super relieved when they spoke to an investor for their Series B who said, just to be clear, we don't help. But, you know, (laughs) that's fine.
2: Yeah, I think that's totally legitimate. I totally agree with Matt that sometimes like trying to help can just get in the way. It comes down to this, sort of as a CEO, there's a lot of clutter in your inbox in in your mind and actually the worst thing you can have is like constantly be bombarded with questions and can you do this can i introduce you to this sometimes you just need people to get out of the way and let you execute
0: one of a ceo's most important roles is to articulate a compelling vision for their company's future i asked pete how he sees dispatch developing in a post-pandemic environment
2: for us i think we're already in a post-pandemic environment in the sense that restaurants are open and for as long as restaurants are open they don't close again and i don't think they will we're in the new normal and therefore what we've been doing for the past six months and what we continue to do is actually work on the fundamentals of the business which is helping restaurants develop new revenue streams they needed that before the pandemic the pandemic accelerated that need and they're going to need that going forward and helping customers have amazing food experiences in their home and again that trend was happening before the pandemic it was massively accelerated during the last 18 months and it's not going anywhere in the next ten years. And and so yeah, it's it's all about working on fundamentals and 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 building like a long term sustainable business in a completely new category, which is what we're doing, restaurant meal kits of eating at home.
0: While Matt is excited about the future. He also acknowledges that navigating the post pandemic world isn't gonna be easy.
1: We founded a company pre COVID. The trend that we founded the company on the, the change in the world wasn't a, a COVID-induced one. It's a COVID accelerated one, I think. And the change that we built the company around and the thesis was that it was actually it's actually kind of economic and technological shifts that are that are changing. There's, you know, the internet bringing the world into one place online, being able to do things like this virtually rather than have to get into a into a recording studio, but also kind of broader economic trends of globalization as well, meaning that. Companies with are thinking like with such a global mindset now, and COVID has kind of kicked a lot of that on and accelerated some of that that behavioural shift. But like that's been happening anyway, and I and I think it's just like that flywheel is turning just even faster now than it was before. So I think that's going to like it's going to keep accelerating post COVID, whatever that means. And you know, for us, that means you know the the problem that we solve is is that those companies that are wanting to be global. Um, have to deal with all the complexity that comes with that. They have to figure out how to operate as multinationals. And, you know, really, we've got a product that our customers love today, which is helping them employ people overseas. But actually, there's so many more problems that our customers have um, as they build global organizations. We've only just started to scratch the surface of really the problems that we want to help our customers with. Um, So hopefully lots of exciting things ahead. We've certainly got a lot in the works for next year. But again, next year's, you know, only kind of step two. You know, I think uh, there's going to be a lot more to come after that as well.
0: Both Matt and Pete have grown into phenomenal business leaders, striving to launch and grow their companies in the pandemic era. But I wanted to find out what kind of work they think they might be doing if they hadn't started their businesses when they did.
2: So I've worked in food and restaurants for the past 10 years. That's the space that I know. When I came to EFA two months ago, I was actually planning to do something completely different. So I would like to say that if Dispatch hadn't worked, i would be building a completely different company in a different space. But fundamentally, I think I would have always come back to food and restaurants in some way. What that business looks like, I have no idea. But I I think once you've got a space that you know really well, you're going to build, and and if you're an entrepreneur and if you like solving problems, you're going to build something in that space. What it looks like, I have no idea, but I'm I'm sure I would have done something.
1: I ran a B2B software company prior to founding Omnipresent. And I think It's kind of hard to see myself outside of that sphere, the B2B software world, whether that's as a founder or as somebody in a product or go-to-market role. Those are the things that I enjoy doing and uh, I can't really see myself outside of that sphere.
0: Finally, I also asked Pete and Matt to share some advice for aspiring entrepreneurs who want to get started themselves.
2: Don't hold back. Make it happen. Jump off the cliff. Build build the plane on the way down. Ambition is like a prerequisite, but I think ambition
1: is easy. I think the thing that's harder is like, just getting stuck in and getting shit done. I think there's a lot of posturing and kind of image crafting that people do um, at like particularly at earlier stages. And it's just like a complete waste of time. And like, it does not help build your company. It does not help build a product. It does not help you get customers uh, in most industries. Maybe if you're building some, some social media platform or something, it would, but certainly not in the, in the spheres that, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in like just, get shit done results are what really matters at the end of the day um that, that's like the that's unfortunately the truth you, you can't build a business on twitter
0: that brings us to the end of this episode of the entrepreneur first podcast i hope you enjoyed hearing how entrepreneurs like pete and matt are tackling the challenges of the pandemic era and embracing the new future of work and leisure join us in the next episode where i speak to joe root co-founder and ceo of permutive whose company is leading the charge in building the privacy-first infrastructure for consumer advertising. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about Entrepreneur First, visit joinef.com. A big thank you to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the podcast. And thank you for listening. Catch you next time.
2: fruition.